Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing what today's COVID-19 data can reveal about what may come about six months from now. To discuss this, our IDSA member, Dr. Amish Adalja with Johns Hopkins University and Dr. Ali Mokdad with Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Thank you both for being with me. Dr. Mokdad, I'd like to start with you. What does COVID-19 data modeling tell us about what to expect over the next six months? The modeling is telling us that we will see a rise of cases and mortality, unfortunately, in the coming months. Uh, it's supposed to start coming down due to seasonality sometimes in March, April. Short of a vaccine, uh, the cases and the mortality will also keep rising. Uh, and I don't think a vaccine right now will help us because it will be too late when it is introduced. So this season, this coming December, January, February, when we expect cases to go up, unfortunately, we have only our good behaviors to prevent that rise or that amount of that rise. And unfortunately, we are starting right now from a higher point. So uh, that's why you would see a much more increase than we would have expected if we have been able to contain this virus in the summertime. Thank you for your insight, Dr. Mokda. Dr. Adalja, turning to you now, we often hear of case counts as a measure of where we are in the pandemic. Is this the best measure, and what other indicators should you examine? I would say that case counts are one measure, but they're not the whole picture because you really want to know what the outbreak is doing dynamically in a given community. And you can look at the case count, that's going to give you some prevalence, and you have to always remember that that case count is a gross underestimate because we still aren't testing enough right now. But so what I like to look at as a clinician and as someone who does a lot of kind of quasi-public health efforts, is looking at the percent positivity. How many tests are you doing that are coming back positive? Is that trend going up? Is it going down? Is it staying the same? That gives me an idea of how hard it is to find a case of COVID in your community. And if it's getting easier to find a case, that's not a good sign. So that's one metric I think that's, I think, more important than the total case count. Another is looking at hospital capacity. What percentage of a hospital census has COVID patients and how has that changed over time and what percentage of their ICU beds are occupied by COVID patients? Because remember, when we talk about flattening the curve, a lot of that discussion is about keeping the number of cases, the pace of cases to a level that's below hospital capacity. So those are numbers that I look at in addition to just the sheer number of cases that are occurring. And one last one is what percentage of your cases are not known to public health, meaning they're not part of a contact trace network. They weren't people that were on your radar before they popped up as a positive. That's another important aspect of understanding how well your outbreak is under control in a given community. Thank you, Dr. Adalja, for those points. Dr. Mokdad, turning back to you now, how does what is happening in Europe and other parts of the world factor into your projections? I totally agree with with my colleague. I will also add one thing to keep an eye on when it comes to hospital capacity and ICU beds capacity is what was the rate of occupancy for your ICUs last year in winter as well. So we know how many ICUs we have, but we need to take out the percentage that's expected to be used beside COVID-19 or before COVID-19. This piece of information is very important because we would like to know at certain places in the country that ICUs will be over one to 60% even without COVID. And that's 
something that we need to keep an eye on in order to know how many ICUs will be available for COVID-19 in the coming months. For Europe, uh, we, we remain three, four weeks behind the surge in Europe here in the United States. So we are closely at IHME monitoring what's happening in Europe. Cases and deaths continue to increase exponentially right now with no evidence of a slowdown uh, in Europe. Several country, uh, countries have reimposed national mandates and uh, many have imposed local mandates. So mask using is increasing and mobility is coming down. To our surprise, we noticed that there was a rapid reimposing of mandates in Europe, even with the discussions in Europe that they were not willing to do mandates, demonstrations and parts in Germany and others, but the countries in general reimposed mandate faster than what we have expected here or anticipated at IHME. Uh, most countries in the region uh, will experience extreme stress on their hospital system and ICU capacity because we know how many ICUs each country has and we know what's the percentage usage of these ICU on the average uh, from last year. So that's what we are expecting, unfortunately, for Europe, uh, that it's not slowing down. And we know from the Southern Hemisphere in Argentina, Chile, and other parts of the world, even with strict uh, mandates and with high prevalence of use of masks and the reduction in mobility, we have seen cases increase in winter in, in that part of the world. So unfortunately for us here in the Northern Hemisphere, this is unfolding here again, and then we will see a rise in cases since COVID-19 is a seasonal virus, and we see a similar pattern with COVID-19, similar to what we see in pneumonia. Thank you, Dr. Mokdad. How do current COVID-19 data inform future public health and clinical practices? Dr. Adalja. When you look at the data as a clinician, the, question, the first question you ask is how does that data impact the patient in front of them? And when you're in a place where the percent positivity is rising, where there are a lot of cases in the community, that's going to tell you that there is more of a chance that my patient's symptoms are compatible with COVID-19. And if you're in a place where COVID is very controlled, like Vermont, for example, you might think maybe this isn't COVID, this could be influenza because we're starting to see influenza cases. So that data can be incorporated into individual patient decisions. Also, when you're a clinician, you often have, especially an infectious disease clinician, you have a lot of input in how the hospital operates during this crisis. And you can look at that data and help your administrators decide things about ICU bed flow, personal protective equipment needs, how to think about elective procedures, whether they should be continuing, whether they should be paused. That data is going to help you best inform those individuals that need to make decisions about your hospital operations. Excellent points, Dr. Adalja. Thank you. This next question I'd like to direct to both of you. And Dr. Mukdad, I'm going to start with you. In your opinion, what can we do to change these projections we've been talking about? What we can do in order to change the current projections. First, uh, increase mask use in, in our country through mandates, whether it is a national or the federal government to play a role in twisting the arm, quite honestly, of every state to have a mandate, mask mandate, and a reinforcement mechanism for that mask mandate. So it's very important. Keep hammering our public health message about safe distance and uh, washing your hands. Definitely we need a national plan. Right now what didn't work for us in the United States is leaving it up to every state or every city or every county to decide what to do. We need a national plan with guidelines from CDC and others in order to make sure everybody is doing exactly the same. It's very important to take this virus seriously in this country for uh, a long time. Some voices here said it will disappear and it's not uh, a real virus. Start listening to science is very important and giving scientists a chance to find a, an effective uh, and safe vaccine. 
Working together is very important, of course, and then everybody should be on the table uh, from different uh, fields in order to make sure we listen to each other and make sure we have this consistent public health message that will make people change their behavior. Again, short of a vaccine and effective drug, which is for a vaccine, unfortunately, it's like a flu. Uh, again, uh, a vaccine for flu is needed today and not in March or April. So we need to count on our behavior and we need to make sure that we do each one of us our parts in order to control this virus. The biggest point is it's our behavior is what's driving these cases. And I think we have to drill it into the American public that we're in the midst of a pandemic. In any activity you do where you socially interact with someone, carry some non-zero risk of transmitting or acquiring the virus, and we've got to get better at risk calculation. I think we should borrow things that we've done with, with, with sexually transmitted infections and with injection drug users, thinking about harm reduction. We know we're not going to get the cases to zero. That's not possible but we can give people tools to reduce the damage and the harm that this virus causes by telling them to do things just like, you know, wearing face coverings when you can't social distance, to avoid congregated and crowded areas, to wash their hands a lot, to be really mindful of who they're in contact with, try to do things outdoors more than indoors as long as weather permits. All of that gives us a toolkit to start to decrease the level of cases because there's a lot of false alternatives being created between everybody stays at home forever on one hand and the other one, everybody acts as if they just turned 21. Uh, today, and they're all out there doing everything. So you've got to figure out a way to come up with a, a middle path and move away from these false dichotomies and give people the tools to be able to, to live their lives with the, with the added knowledge that there are simple common sense measures that they can take that will reduce the spread of the virus in their community. Totally agree. And I will add one point. As we come into the holiday seasons, we have to remind each one of us that if you want to go and be with your family and sit on a dining table with the ones that you care about the most, you have to be careful and don't bring an invited guest with you, COVID-19, and make sure you isolate before you join your family or do all the good behaviors as we have discussed. And of course, if you can test yourself and make sure even after you tested yourself because you're negative on that day and you could be still carrying the virus. So you have to be extra careful and use all the cautions even when you are indoors with your family until you are 100% sure that you don't have COVID-19 and you're not spreading it indoors. All excellent points, doctors. I wanted to ask you both now before we close about herd immunity. How would a herd immunity strategy affect the number of COVID-19 cases? Dr. Mokdan, Let's start with you. I have strong opinions about herd immunity. In my mind, it is criminal and it means we gave up and we are going to let a lot of people die. And we have put scenarios at IHME at different levels of herd immunity, 40%, 50%, 60%, how many people will die in this country and globally. And this is a number we cannot afford. In my opinion, we should not be talking about herd immunity, especially at this time. And we should tell the public exactly what we have been discussing today in terms of prevention and our good behaviors. We should not surrender to this virus. Yeah, I agree that if you think about what herd immunity would do to the number of cases, the simple answer is it would explode them. And it's part of those cases where would include people that require hospitalizations and people who would die. And we already know right now, speaking in November, that there are hospitals in trouble in Utah, in El Paso, in North and South Dakota, in, in Wisconsin. And you can imagine that if if people got infected at the rates that would be required for herd immunity, many people would die, hospitals would go into crisis, and we would be really in a horrible place, even worse than you could, could imagine. So the way to get the herd immunity is through a vaccine. 
And I think that's the, that's the most important point to remember because we cannot keep this virus from hitting vulnerable populations. And it's not just about deaths, it's also about younger people who get infected and have long haul symptoms that may interfere with their quality of life for a long period of time. So this isn't something we should be considering with a virus like this. At this point, I'd like to open the floor for any final thoughts. Be safe as we enter this winter and be extra careful. And of course, if you can move your activities outdoors, uh, if the weather allows you to, that would be great. And if you can open windows when you are indoor, that would be even better. Practice safe distance, practice all the good behaviors. Let us try to reduce the number of cases and not overwhelm our hospitals. That's the only thing we can do right now. There are some positive things that are going on uh, right now, and I would love uh, for uh, my colleague to comment on we are seeing a little bit improvement and actually some improvement in the treatment and uh, there is a reduction in the infection fatality rate in, uh, in many parts of the world across all age groups so that's encouraging but we're not there we need to be extra vigilant as we enter this winter we're, we're in the midst of a pandemic and even with the promising news of a vaccine being developed as well as the advances in treatment we've had with dexamethasone, with remdesivir, with much more knowledge of the complications, how to predict, prevent, and treat them, we still have a lot of work to do. So we will be battling this virus well into 2021. And while there is a lot of reason for enthusiasm and hope, we can't let that distract us away from the fact that what we have to do today is change our behaviors in a way that keep our hospitals from worrying about their capacity and, and keeping our vulnerable populations safe. And I think that the message is going, the message is going to be the same for that as we go into 2021. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Mokdad and Adalja for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, and don't forget to visit our COVID-19 real-time learning network at idsociety.org slash COVID-19 real-time learning network for the most up-to-date COVID resources. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.